Well, good morning. Uh, As you've probably figured out by now, we are continuing on in our Advent series this morning here at Crossview. And uh, the word Advent just means coming or arrival. And so this whole Advent season and this series in particular is all about the arrival of Jesus Christ. And we're working through the four key words of Advent uh, in our series called Words of Advent. It's really clever, I know. Uh, Hope and peace, we've already heard the last couple of weeks, and then uh, today we're talking about joy, and next week we will cover love. Well, when we hear uh, the word joy, we think about a lot of different things, don't we? We think about happy, that's kind of more than happy, maybe exuberant or excited, all these emotional words kind of surround and touch joy, but we also know that joy is a lot more than just an emotion. Well, joy, I think universally, is something that people want from the human experience, from the human experience, but how do we get that? How do we attain joy? Well, we try in all sorts of ways. Have you ever stopped to think about this? How am I trying to fill my life with joy? Maybe Is it relationships for you, or sports, or new gadgets, or exciting vacations? Maybe it's something else, but whatever it is, we're certainly not alone in this quest for joy in things or in experiences. Once again, uh, on Black Friday and Cyber Monday in the United States, we set a new record for the amount spent, $20.5 billion dollars this year, online consumers spent just in the United States. That's up three or four percent again from last year. So why do we buy all this stuff? Might it be to try and feel something? I think if we take a good hard look in the mirror at our selfish selves, the main reason that we buy anything or travel anywhere or do just about anything is for that dopamine hit, right? And to try to feel something really good. And who can blame us? Right? Life is hard. Life is really hard. We've got the pressures of work, of relationships, the pressure of kids or grandkids or parents. School beats down on us. There's this constant pressure from these perfectly, perfectly curated Instagram accounts right, to live lives that are worthy of sharing on social media. Everywhere we look and everything we see tells us that our lives are rather boring and bland, And we need to amp them up somehow in order to feel something, right? To feel anything. And hopefully, in doing that, we can escape the pressure of life and approach something like joy. But the harsh reality that so many of us have already realized is that every single thing we experience in this life leaves us wanting for more. Great vacation? Well, when's the next one? Got a cool new camera or piece of tech? Well, when does the upgrade come out. Your sports team wins a championship. A few days later, what are you asking? Well, what is next season shaping up like? Got together with family. It was a great time. On the drive home, what are you asking? When do we get to do that again? Nothing satisfies us. Nothing in this life brings us the lasting joy we want it to. Nothing, that is, except that holy infant so tender and mild, the one for whom glories stream from heaven afar and angels sing alleluia, Christ the Savior, Jesus, Lord at his birth. 
Well, this morning as we take a look at Luke chapter 2 and a couple of other passages, we're going to ask this question, how does Jesus' arrival fill us with lasting joy? And as we work through, we're going to see a few answers to that question. So would you uh, pray with me as we dive in together? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that we live where we do, where we can gather freely in your name this morning. Lord, as sinful people, we confess that we often seek satisfaction in lesser things. We seek joy from things that can't give, that can't give it. And so, Father, would you forgive us for that? Lord, we're so grateful for the good news of Jesus and for the truth of your word and that through Jesus we can experience lasting joy. Would you remind us of that by your spirit this morning? It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't already, would you open up to Luke chapter 2, and whatever translation you have is fine. If you're using the Worship Center Bible, that's on page 909. Uh, We also have it available in version with some sermon notes, uh, if you prefer that. I'm preaching from the CSB, uh, but whatever translation, again, you use is just fine. Well, the scene is set in our text uh, for the arrival of Jesus in that familiar story that Maureen read for us in Luke chapter 2, right? Caesar has called for a census, and Joseph and Mary, Mary being pregnant with Jesus, head to Bethlehem, where they famously can't find anywhere decent to stay, and they end up housing with animals. And Mary, on that silent night, right, maybe not so silent, uh, has her baby, wraps him in swaddling clothes, and lays him in a manger, Well, that's a unique scene to our modern and Western eyes, this infant being born in the midst of animals. But throughout history and around the world today, women have had and continue to have babies in all sorts of circumstances that we would consider less than ideal. Early hearers of this birth story likely would not have batted an eye, right? Oh, some kid was born and there were animals around. Cool story, right? I'm glad to hear that he's healthy, Well, while being born around animals is somewhat unremarkable, we, of course, know that there are all kinds of miraculous events surrounding the birth of Jesus, right? From its location in Bethlehem to the bright star that appeared above him in the sky to the fact that he was born of a virgin, some pretty remarkable things. But perhaps what's most amazing about this passage and most amazing about Jesus' birth are the promises fulfilled and the fanfare that comes immediately after. Look with me. At verse 11, again, the angel proclaims this to the shepherds. He says, Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. It's impossible to overstate the importance of that statement, of what the angel says to those shepherds. He says, Today, right here, right now, right there in that manger in Bethlehem, there's no more waiting, there's no more anticipation, there's no more longing for. Right now, here, finally, a Savior is born, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Well, why is the arrival or the advent of Jesus something that leads to lasting joy? Well, because God gave us his son. God gave us his son. Verse 11 tells us that right here, right now, someone significant is here, right? And what or who is that someone? The angel says, a savior, the Messiah, and the Lord. The arrival of Jesus on that day in Bethlehem was incredibly significant. And the angel proclaims at least those three important truths about Jesus in this pronouncement. First, uh, whoops. First, he says, 
I don't know what's going on. We're going to we're going to pause that. So first he says a savior is born in Bethlehem, right? And uh, people have all sorts of ideas about what God is like, right? Particularly as we look at the Old Testament. I think we get this wrong idea that uh, God is this mean and judgmental and hateful God. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, right? God did not send his son into the world to bring forth judgment and wrath, though he would have been well within his bounds to do so because of our sin. No, God sent into the world his son as a savior. There's this famous passage in Isaiah 55 that says this. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then there's this part that we love to quote. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland points out the gross misinterpretation we often have of these verses. When we read them, we often like to focus on those last two verses, right? My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, and God's ways are higher than ours, as high as the heavens are above the earth. We say, well, I don't know what God's doing here, but his ways are higher than mine, so it's fine that I can't understand what's going on, right? This tragedy or this unexpected gift or this trial must be for my benefit somehow, even if I can't understand it, because God's ways are so much higher than mine. I think, unfortunately, we sometimes use these verses to unnecessarily hyper-spiritualize the events of our lives and give every little thing some sort of eternal significance, when really, sometimes our lives are the way they are because we sin or because sin exists, and sometimes— Sometimes the events in the world have absolutely nothing to do with me. In our culture, we love to make everything about me, right? And how God might be speaking to me. But sometimes that's just not what's going on. But here's the thing. That's not primarily what these verses are talking about. They're not talking about how much higher God's ways are than ours so we can be okay not understanding what's going on. Yes, it is true that God's ways are higher than ours, and we often can't understand his ways, right? If we could, he wouldn't be God. If we could figure God out, he he wouldn't be God, and we can't fully understand him. But the purpose of that being pointed out is not so we can be happy with not knowing what God's doing. No, it's to show how totally unfathomable God's response to our sin is. See, in Isaiah 55, as we just read, Isaiah calls for seeking God and turning from wicked ways and unrighteousness, so that what? So that he may have compassion and abundantly pardon. A savior. God is a savior. He's not a wicked monster in heaven who wants to crush sinful people. He's an unbelievably loving and gracious and merciful and glorious king who sent, who willingly gave his son Jesus so that in our sin he may have compassion and abundantly pardon. John 3, 16 and 17 says it like this. It says, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world 
but to save the world through him. See, God did not send his son to bring punishment and pain. No, God's ways are higher than ours in that when he has every right to be angry and crush us, he instead forgives, he pardons, he gives of himself. Jesus, not us, was crushed for our iniquities. God made and continues to make the first move. Can you imagine doing this in your own life? How difficult that would be? When someone hurts us deeply and intentionally, our first move is almost never to move toward that person and sacrifice ourselves to heal the relationship, right? We sit and we stew and we tell our friends and family, oh my goodness, I can't believe that they treated me like that. We sit there with this indignation in our hearts waiting for them to come and apologize and make it right. But that's not what God did. No, God sent a Savior, His very Son, to forgive and to heal and to abundantly pardon. Heavenly hosts sing, Alleluia, Christ the Savior is born. Well, not only is Jesus Savior, but He's also Messiah, or the Christ. Depending on what translation you have in front of you, you'll see the word Messiah or Christ in verse 11, and they are words that are basically interchangeable. They mean something like anointed one or deliverer, and in the Old Testament, a king or a spiritual leader, someone like King David or King Josiah or even Moses, may have been called Israel's immediate Messiah or deliverer. That title was given to those men. But God's people knew that those leaders were incomplete, right? And we can see that in their lives, and that Israel needed a better Savior, God himself. And so they eagerly looked forward to the one who from 2 Samuel 7 would sit on David's throne and reign forever. They longed for that one uh, from Isaiah 7 who would be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel, God with us. They watched as Micah 5 told them to for one who would come from the town of Bethlehem. Well, Israel knew that a deliverer would come, but as Glenn pointed out a couple of weeks ago, there was a period of about 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament events where the scriptures and prophets basically ceased. And so, waiting in faithfulness was difficult. But men and women, like Simeon or Anna, later in Luke 2, eagerly awaited their promised deliverer. And in time, as he always does, God came through. Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of promises, the anointed deliverer of God's people, was born that night in Bethlehem. Why is Jesus' arrival good news? Because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. What does Jesus as Messiah mean for you and me? At least part of Jesus' Messiahship means that God can be trusted. He can be trusted. He keeps his promises. Throughout his life, Jesus would be the fulfillment of 300-some prophecies, and he was certainly the fulfillment of the greatest promise that God ever made, that he would deliver his people from their sins. God makes good on his promise to both Jews and Gentiles, to his chosen nation of Israel, and to people like you and me in the person and work of Jesus. He can be trusted. It's good news of great joy that God can be trusted, right? He's not some deviant. He's not some divine child using a magnifying glass on ants. He's a loving, kind, and trustworthy father who keeps his promises. 
Jesus is Savior, He's Messiah, and He's Lord. Jesus is Lord. Notice that the word Lord is used a few times in this text, right? There's an angel of the Lord. There's the glory of the Lord that shines, and the shepherds are terrified. And then there's Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, and the Lord. Well, this little one laying in the manger is God himself. He's the Lord over all. He's the same one who sent that angel, the same one whose glory lights up the night sky. Listen to this description of him from Colossians chapter 1. It says, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That's who's lying in that manger, that one who was active at creation. He created, and everything in creation was made for him, and he holds all of creation together by his power. He's the head of the body and, and the church. He is preeminent. He is first in all things. That's who's lying in the manger. Why is that good news of great joy? Because in God's condescension, in his bending down low, we see that God will do whatever it takes to rescue sinners. God will do whatever it takes to rescue sinners. Notice where Jesus came, to a manger, a feeding trough for animals, right? The king of the universe, the one who rightly declares over every square centimeter of creation, mine. That one had stooped down so low that he would be born and laid in a feeding trough. Notice what Jesus came as, a human and an infant at that. Infants are weak and frail and defenseless and needy and fragile. The human body, right, existing in the midst of a sinful and broken world is definitely a step down from what Jesus was in heaven, right? When we fall down and we get hurt, when we fall down, we get hurt, we, we stub our toes, we smash our fingers. As we age, we get sore knees and sore backs, we have hunger pains, and we have allergies, and we cough, and we sneeze, and like all this stuff, right? A lot of being a human being and taking on flesh is a struggle, but God himself in the person of the Son took on human flesh. He became fully human so that he could do what Isaiah 55 said, so that he could have compassion and abundantly pardon. If God would descend to such lowly depths to save humanity, how much more will he care for us as we seek to follow him? See, the good news of Jesus Christ and his arrival is not merely that we can be saved from our sins, though that would be enough. There's even more good news. He promises to walk with us and comfort us and live in and through us as we carry out our lives. What a glorious and joyful truth that God will do whatever it takes to care for those he called to himself. Well, finally, the arrival of Jesus is good news because he is a Savior, a Messiah, and a Lord for all people. 
Immediately after Luke writes that Mary lays Jesus in this manger, he shifts to these shepherds out in the field. Now, if the picture in your head of shepherds is one of like sweet, nice old men who have, you know, their nice cloaks on and a staff and maybe they're like snuggling a baby lamb and, you know, rubbing their beard on it or whatever because they're these nice guys, the sweet grandfather type that anyone would love, right? Well, that's your picture. I hate to burst your bubble, but that ain't it. That ain't it. During the time of Jesus' birth, shepherds were, broadly speaking, not good dudes. I know that Jesus is the good shepherd, and throughout the Bible, God is a good and loving shepherd, and it's probably because of that that we have such a favorable view of shepherds in the Bible, but that's not who they are. Commentator James Edwards describes them as one of the meaner groups in society. They're people who lived long periods of time outdoors and apart from human community and culture, and people who preyed on lonely travelers and struggled to distinguish the difference between mine and thine. It kind of makes sense, right? They're these guys who are tasked with protecting these dumb animals who are wandering around in their fields, and there's predators around, and they're not engaging with people in culture, and so they have to be kind of burly and rough, and they're doing whatever it takes to survive, right? Well, they weren't well-liked. One rabbi actually said of them, there is no more despised occupation in the world than that of shepherds. They were counted with gamblers and tax collectors as the least-liked trades in early Jewish tradition. So like I said, not good dudes. And yet, it's to this group that Luke tells us the angel first appears. So these guys are out there tending their sheep in the field that night, and this angel appears, and the glory of the Lord shines around him, and it fills the night sky, and they're understandably filled with great fear. All right, you've been outside at night, and it's dark, and it's not the most comfortable place to be in the first place, and you're supposed to protect your sheep from these predators who might be coming at night. And now, all of a sudden, out of the blue, the sky is filled with uh, the glory of the Lord, and there's this terrifying heavenly being. Uh, I'd be a little bit afraid. I think you might echo that sentiment. But the angel quickly corrects them. Fear not, he says, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people all the people. Yes, even you, outcasts and thieves and liars and despised, unto you, yes, even you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The angel comes and declares to shepherds that a Savior, the Christ, has come for them. This is shocking. It's shocking. Think with me about this. For years and years and years, the people of Israel have waited and anticipated and longed for someone to come and rescue them, right? The prophets spoke about it. It's in the scriptures, and people looked forward to this day when they would be rescued. And with all that eager awaiting and longing, it probably would have made sense that an angel would go to like the high priest or something, right? Someone who would understand what's going on, who would, who would have understood the scriptures and known about heavenly things. It didn't make sense that the shepherds would appear to these lowly shepherds, or that the angels would appear to these lowly shepherds, right? There's just no way that people thought the news would come to them. Well, I'm hesitant to call out uh, specific sins here, as though we're not all broken, but I want you to think for just a second, in your own head, not out loud, not with your neighbor, what is the worst type of sinner that you can imagine? The worst type. It's the person 
or the people that nobody likes, and maybe the reason no one likes them is their own fault, right? They did this to themselves. You have no pity for them because they're in this situation because they made their choices, and now they have to deal with the consequences. Maybe that person is yourself. Maybe you're super struggling with the reality of your life and the decisions you've made and the absolute mess of things that you've created. Well, whoever that is for you, whatever kind of person or people or sin issue it is that you thought of, that you have just no patience for, that's who this proclamation was to. This proclamation of salvation, of a Savior, a Messiah, the Christ, the consolation of Israel, the dawn of redeeming grace. It came to outcasts and the broken, not the Pharisees and the religious elite or the high priests. Luke's emphasis right at the start is that this good news of great joy is for all peoples, and it's immediately and emphatically illustrated and proved by the angel appearing to the least of these. How can there be lasting joy because of Jesus? Because no matter your brand of brokenness, you can be saved. You can have a relationship with Jesus. When we keep singing this song like we did this morning and repeating the lyrics, hope for everyone, this is what we're talking about. The good news of Jesus' arrival gives hope for everyone. No matter how broken and sinful, no matter if your life situation is circumstantial or self-inflicted, Jesus' arrival is good news for you. If you place your trust in him, you can be forgiven and free. And that doesn't mean that your life is going to get a lot better right here and right now. It might not. We still live in a broken world that is not as it should be. But it does mean that you will be washed and made new and be made whole. And you will be saved from a penalty of your sin because of Christ's life, death, and glorious resurrection. And what could bring more joy than security in Christ for all eternity? Jesus' arrival is good news of great and lasting joy because he is a savior for all people. We've seen that Jesus is a savior, not a condemner. He's the Messiah, the long-awaited one by whom God has kept his promise. He's the Lord. He's God himself willing to step down to do whatever it takes to save his people. And Jesus is a savior for all people, even the worst. So what do we do with all of that? What do we do with these things? Well, first, make a decision to trust in Jesus for your salvation. If you've not yet made Jesus Lord of your life and decided to follow after him, you do that. Because you can continue to try and find joy in whatever it is you're using, but you already know it's not going to work. No experience or thing or idea or achievement, none of it has ever led to lasting joy up to this point in your life, and I can promise you it's not going to. But you know what will? The knowledge that you have been washed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and are fully forgiven for your sins, and that you will one day behold him for all eternity. If this is a decision that you want to make today, call out to the Lord, confess your sin, and ask God to forgive you on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. If you want more than that, if you want to, if you want to talk about that, talk to someone who brought you. Talk to someone sitting in your row or find a pastor or a staff member or someone in the worship team or tech booth. We would love to talk to you. Send an email this week. We'd love to talk to you about how you can be confident 
in your salvation in Jesus Christ and experience joy in this life and the next. And then, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, you do these three things. First, you share the joy of Jesus Christ with anyone and everyone you can. People all around you are dead. They're dead. That's how the Bible talks about us prior to confessing Jesus. Not broken or less fortunate or on a journey or on a path or any of that, right? The Bible says people apart from Jesus are dead. And there are dead people everywhere you go. And you have the words of life that lead to lasting joy and eternal life. So use them. Use them. Talk to people where God has placed you about salvation in Jesus. Second, you enjoy the God of your salvation like crazy. Pastor and author John Piper famously and regularly reminds people that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Did you catch that? God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. What does that mean? Well, it means that as you enjoy God's good gifts, as you run to him in repentance for forgiveness, as you find love and joy and hope and peace in him, he is glorified. It's this amazing truth that God gets the most glory by giving us the things that we need most from him. So rejoice in the Lord. Instead of delighting in things or relationships or experiences, find your joy in Jesus. Fill your heart and your mind and your home and your conversations deeply and regularly with the glory of the Lord. Finally, worship God together. Like the angels in verse 14, who proclaimed glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. We're going to close this service in just a minute by singing a rendition of Joy to the World, that classic Christmas praise. And as we do, let it be a prayer that the whole earth would receive her King. And let it be an encouragement to your brother and sister in Christ as we proclaim the arrival of Him. Let's pray.